0: I I felt myself lifting away, and I could actually look down and see Roger performing, resuscitating me, and then I'm back in my body. And he said I was down for about eight minutes, seven or eight minutes, don't know for sure.
1: Welcome to the Veteran-Led Podcast, where we talk with leaders who use their military experiences to develop great organizations and continue to serve their communities. Today's episode, we have former Navy SEAL and Vietnam veteran, Craig Marley. As a member of SEAL Team One, he was assigned to MACV SOG in Da Nang, where he trained South Vietnamese sea commandos in clandestine missions into North Vietnam. His underwater adventures have taken him into some of the deepest and most hostile parts of the ocean. Over the next 25 years, he authored numerous award-winning technical papers, several novels, and helped several laser startup companies grow to multi-million dollar enterprises.
0: I was born in Canada. My parents are Canadian. And um, after the war was over, my dad couldn't get a job. There was no work after the war was over. I was born in 43 and and the war ended in 45. And so my mother had two brothers that had migrated to California. And that was they, they helped my mom and dad get uh, all the paperwork together and get a sponsor at that time. But they grew up in the depression era. So they were that you know kind of mentality of people that were born. My dad was born in 1916. My mom was born in 1920. Um, my mom had a, had a real affinity for the water. She loved to water. My dad used to t- take her on canoe trips uh, up, the, uh, up the river in, in Winnipeg. And uh, we emigrated to California when I was three years old. And my mom decided she wanted to be a Red Cross water instructor. And in those days, the Red Cross gave a certifiable course in swimming uh, instruction. And she wanted to treat uh, people because she saw many times in in Winnipeg, kids getting thrown in the water by their uncle or their dad or drunk neighbor or whatever and drowning. And she felt that a lot of people that had survived that event really needed some professional training to get over the obstacle of the fear of drowning because they'd already experienced that. And um, she t- had me tag along as a five-year-old. And I was the guy that had to go down to the bottom of the pool and pick up an object. And then she would use that to taunt the uh, the students and say, if a five-year-old can do it, you know, so can you. And, she, and so I was helping her in that small way. And we became obviously very close. Um, after I after we moved to California, I got involved in competitive swimming at the local YMCA, and um, I did pretty well in the age group stuff. This is the eight, nine, ten-year-old, eleven-year-old. But my coach, a gentleman by the name of Fred Wejack, at the San Jose Y, he said, you know, Craig, you're never going to be able to get the kind of training that here at the Y. First of all, the pool was a 20-meter pool, and all the competitions done in 25 yards or 50 meters, one of the two, depending on whether you're in a short course or long course. So he asked if I would be interested in going away to uh, Santa Clara Swim Club and interviewing with the coach, George Haynes. Uh, George was an, a, a wonderful coach, and over his career, he was Olympic Olympic coach several times for both men and women. So he, he coached, I believe, over 50 Olympians. And so it was a very honor, much of an honor, to, for me to be able to, to go t- to interview with him. My parents didn't have any money. We grew up in in a... In a modest um, income family, but uh, George let that by. He did not pursue that at all. And he let me join the team after a few um, laps of swimming and time trials, felt that I had some some, um, some promising future in swimming. So I worked real hard in the pool. We worked uh, sometimes two, three hours a day, sometimes twice a day, six days a week. And, and as I grew up, um, my times got better. My I was typically winning more races and uh, competing at, at a very high level. Um, that was That's the story of my swimming career. I held the national high school record momentarily uh, for the 100-yard breaststroke, and I was very good in water polo as well.
1: And and in reading the book, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm getting through it, and I'm getting to that part. I'm like, oh, this guy's going to go on to be a college swimmer, an Olympic athlete. And, 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 and that didn't happen. What happened, Craig?
0: Well, what happened was I, I fell in lust. <laughs> I guess that's the word for it. Um, one of the gals that was swimming with me, um, a couple of years older, well, she wasn't about a year older than me. And, um, we just got together in the locker room one night and that's, that's how it happened. Um, she got pregnant and, uh, I got married after I, the day after, after I turned 17 years old, it broke. And so my you're mother, married
1: oh, with a kid in high school,
0: married with a kid in high school. And, uh, I came back to high school in my senior year, and uh, don't forget, this is in the 1960s, so the mentality of administration was a little bit different. And uh, basically, they they told me that they weren't going to allow a married man to attend high school with all these other young girls there, so they kicked me out. And uh, even though I had been elected class president, they they kicked me out of high school. So I went to work and did what a responsible father should do. And... um, it wasn't working out. It was clear it wasn't working out. So we uh, we separated and we divorced and we have a daughter. And she lives with her mother in St. Louis. And the mother became a very successful dentist. And, um, and I'm proud that we have a daughter together. And she has three great kids. So I have three great grandchildren from her. Um, no hard feelings, but it broke my mother's heart. It broke my mother's heart. She had invested so much in me. And I felt like I really let her down. And I felt like I had to regain some respect for myself and also for my family. And so that's when I decided to join the Navy. It's ironic that I really didn't have any plans once I got in the Navy. I just thought that that would be a great place to restart my life. And while I was in boot camp, uh, some, some gentlemen from the underwater demolition team, which as you know, is a pre, pre-qualifying or precursor to SEALs, at the time, nobody knew anything about SEAL Team. They had just been commissioned in January of '62, and I went through boot camp in April of '62. And while I was there, some instructors from UDT (Underwater Demolition Team) came into the auditorium and they gave a presentation and showed showed the movie with Richard Woodmark, you know, blowing up explosives in the water and stuff like that. So there was about 200 of us young recruits in the in that group that's that decided to check this out, you know, it must be something fun to be a Navy frogman. And so I filled out the form and um, next day I had to report for an interview. And the guy that interviewed was me was a guy named Jerry Harmon. He had, was a second class bosun mate in, in UDT 11. And he, I, he interviewed me this, with typical questions, you know, and then the final one was, what makes you think you can get through this program? And I took a cocky attitude, and I said, I think I'm faster than anybody you have ever seen in the water. And he called me a cocky rascal. (laughs) And he (laughs) said, okay, report to the pool tomorrow. So I went to the pool the next day, and there was eight guys chosen from that group. And um, I lapped everybody (laughs) in the pool. So, And I could do enough push-ups and enough chin-ups to satisfy the basic requirements. My problem was I'm, I'm a fairly heavy bone man. And I was a, a really terrible runner. I mean, I was always in the goon squad when it came to running. And in one event, I, they tied a rope around my waist and dragged me down the beach behind a Jeep. I was so slow. So get me in the water, coach, <laughs> and I'll show you how to swim. And that's how I got in. And the guys that took the swimming test, only two of us were selected to join the class. And the class had already formed up with um, a couple of dozen officers and I think we had about 188 or 200 enlisted men, and that's how we started the class. We graduated 34 enlisted men and seven officers 26 weeks later.
1: And in your book, you go through in detail about the the, the training and and how difficult it was and, and the challenges and lessons you learned along the way. And one of the terms that came up that that I hadn't seen much of was the KIT, the killed in training. It was a few years before I went to ranger school that the the four rangers, the students uh, died in swamp phase. uh, But this was back in the 60s. This was actually a fairly regular thing, KIT, killed in training.
0: Yes, uh, we didn't lose anybody in my class during the actual BUDS training. But after we deployed, a lot of us would continue our physical exercising, running, swimming, jumping, etc And sometimes men did die as a result of it. I lost a very good friend on a run uh, named RJ Coates. He was in, in my boat crew and uh, we were very close friends. He was a great athlete, tremendous runner, great. Um, and we were on a run and I knew that he was gonna be a lot faster than me. So I took off about 10 minutes ahead of him and um, my route took me down to the Navy exchange in Subic Bay and back to the barracks. And so I didn't run back way the same way I went. And um, I got dressed, went into town, saw some buddies in Subic Bay there having a beer. And the chief came up to us and said, R.J. Coates has died. They found his body on the side of the road. He apparently had a stroke. So those are the kinds of things that happen. Uh, we'd, we'd lose guys in helicopter drops, or if gentlemen dropped. The pilot didn't compensate for the weight every time a man jumps out of a helicopter. However, this is just jumping out of a helicopter, no parachute. Um, you know That extra weight that that person represented is no longer there in the helicopter. And unless the pilot compensates, the helicopter will rise. And so you put eight guys in a stick and the seventh guy goes out. And by then you're another 50, 60 feet higher than the water. So you're maybe 100, 150 feet off the water. And a good friend of mine jumped out and they'd found his body the next day. But he hit the water like he would hit cement away from that altitude. So things like that happen, and uh, it's a tragedy. But it didn't happen often. Um, the, um, the UDT Seal Memorial uh, Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida has a special wall now for KIT um, Navy Seals and operators in addition to the, the, the wall of those that have perished. So I, I fought very hard to get R.J. Coates' name on that um, that memorial. It's a big marble uh, memorial. So that's kind of where the KIT thing came in.
1: And we all know that, that training must be tough and realistic to train our warriors Uh, but we have i believe over the years gotten better at you know implementing safety and the safety briefs for everything now and and we try to do our best to to protect our warriors so that they can actually perform the function that we've we are paying them to do which is which is to fight wars but in the military training isn't just something we do it is what we do and we do it every single day and it's hard it's tough it's realistic and it's dangerous
0: Well, I think that that transcends all forms of of all branches of the service. I mean, Marine Recon guys go through all kinds of training as well. Army Rangers and and Green Beret guys, um, special ops people go through extensive training. And sometimes, going back to the subject of KIT, sometimes some of the instructors don't perhaps understand the, the physiology of that particular person and they push a little bit over the line. Uh, we've had a, a couple of drownings uh, during training um, in the last 10 or 15 years where you know the instructors are telling these guys, you've got to swim 50 meters underwater or you've got to do this with your hands tied behind your back and, and figure out a way to, to stay alive. And they get a little too aggressive maybe. There's been some disciplined officers as well as an, uh, enlisted rank instructors uh, because they went too far. And so that's probably just that's something the military has to deal with. Uh, and it's unfortunate, but it happens.
1: And of course, the purpose to to train us for war. So let's talk about yeah. let's transition now to you 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 leave training and shortly thereafter, you're in Vietnam. Yeah,
0: usually it's about a year um, after you go into your particular platoon, um, I think then they would they, the uh, the team management, if you will, the team officers and the other people. Are going to look to you to see how well they think you will perform in combat situation. Um, they they seldom wash out anybody. Uh, the only time I saw anybody getting washed out was because they were a thief, and uh, they sent him home and uh, busted him out. He wound up as a cook on a DDC <laughs> destroyer.
1: And, and you also brought up that, that as you were going through uh, UDT training um, and, and, and becoming a SEAL, that throughout the, the training process, there were people that quit. And it seemed like the Navy had a expedited system to get them away from the rest of the team. It's almost like we don't want the quitters to infect uh, the people who are giving it their all. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: that. That's true. And I think there was even some stories going around that some men would actually join a class in order to get a new post. Because when they dropped you, you did have the option of going to to one of half a dozen different locations for your next duty station. So the story was that some men would join and and then quit. And then they would just disappear and they'd go back to where they wanted to go. They wanted to go back to Fort Pierce. They wanted to go back to Honolulu or or whatever. Um, On the other hand, a lot of them that quit uh, were probably sorry that they quit and would like to come back. And in my time, the only time that a man could be recycled, if you will, was if he had a, an injury and they felt that he would still have a good chance of making it through the program. And, and a good friend of mine, um, Dave, David Devine, uh, was in the class before mine and he had that happen to him. He had, a, a, had an accident, he broke some bones in his body and he came back in my class and came through my class and did very well. He was killed in action in 68 in Vietnam. Left a wife and in I'm two
1: sorry years. For your, yeah, I'm sorry for your loss, and we, we know how that, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. unfolds. And, and you went to Vietnam in, in what year?
0: My first trip to Vietnam was while I was deployed to Westpac in underwater demolition team 11. And uh, we did uh, we went down. This is a funny story. We went down there on a destroyer, maybe an APD is smaller than destroyer, destroyer escort perhaps, and we swam 30 miles of beaches in hostile territory. So we had a a small squad of uh, force recon guys that set up a perimeter for us while we would recon 500 yards of beach at a time. So the cartography function was we draw a map of the beach every 500 yards. So we would deploy swimmers out with lead lines and they would be taking small arms fire from the beach. And then the beach crew was also um, taking some fire. And when everything got settled down, then we would swim down the beach, maybe a row of of 10 or 12 swimmers. You swim out to the 24-yard foot depth mark. And as you swim down every 25 yards, the crew on the beach would wave two flags and you would take a sounding and write it on your slate, a little plastic slate with a pencil. And when everything was finished, you did maybe a mile of this stuff every 500 yards, the slates were turned into the cartography people, and they would actually make a map then of the of the ocean from 24 feet all the way up to the beach and then onto the hinterland for another 100 meters or so. So the Marines helped us in doing those. So in the end of the day, you had a map that would be suitable for an amphibious invasion. That was the nature of the work. When I got back from that operation, I went to Okinawa and we were doing some mine recovery operations with EOD divers. And we were working on a, on a small uh, turbine powered gas turbine powered boat, a wooden boat, because was, you couldn't have any steel around magnetic mines, they'll blow up. So we were um, diving using these wooden boats. And in the middle of the boat, there was the engine and in the cowling, there were two red lines and it said danger zone here. That was where the, uh, the, the fans on the, on the turbine engine were spinning at a high rate of speed. So we were out on the dive site and these EOD guys were with us. And so we played um, horse or was it rock, paper, scissors. We played a rock, paper, scissors game to see who got to go first in the water. And my buddy, Bob Wilbur and I were the, won that one. And while we were down 110 feet, we were using underwater Pinging sonar to find the mine. It was the mine was about as big as a big fifty-five gallon uh, drum, oil drum. These weren't real mines, by the way. These were dummies that they had dropped. But the the ignition system in it. They wanted to test see if it would take the impact of falling into the water. So we would find the mine, and we had to be careful because there were sea snakes swimming around the bottom of the mine. They like to hide in these little crevices. So we put a buoy on the mine, and we swam back. To the surface and when we got to the surface there was a big cloud of black smoke and everybody was screaming it turned out that the boat that we had just left, the turbine engine, the governor that that uh, controlled the RPM of the turbine had failed and the engine simply disintegrated and it cut the, the uh, one of the EOD divers in half the shrapnel from that engine so he never he lived for two hours we all said a prayer for him but he was gone. So those are the kind of things that happen out in the field, even though you're basically just in a training mode.
1: So, and, and like you said, multiple tours in Vietnam, I remember a story of you uh, and just to backtrack, you met Lynn, the love of your life right before you went to basic and you you didn't, you thought this was, well, this is someone I met and this is probably going to be over. And she stayed with you the whole time. And at some point you decide, I'm done with my military career, and they bring you in the office. They say, "Well, we're going to promote you to sergeant, and uh, but you're going to do another tour." And you say, "Well, wait a minute, I, I don't want this. I, you should have promoted me a long time ago, and I, and I'm out." But uh, but but tell us tell us about the, those experiences where. Um, you know, you, you're obviously, it's a long distance relationship. You know, for my generation, we had internet, we were able to call home. Uh, you have several of your letters, actually, in your book that are written back and forth between you you, you and Lynn. So uh, you made the long distance relationship work. We know that doesn't work often in the military. Often relationships fall apart when there's a lot of deployments, multiple deployments. Uh, but you went to Vietnam multiple times and, and were able to keep that relationship going. How did you make it work?
0: Well, I have to give mostly credit to Lynn, <laughs> I mean, she stuck with me, and, and I even asked her before we got married if she would prefer, you know, maybe that I should go over there and maybe not come back, and why why do you want to get married before I go to Vietnam? And she said, no way. We're getting married in March. I deployed in June. And so we had three months together, and it was great. it was great. And she moved back in with her mom and waited by the mailbox every day for the letters, and I waited for the mail to be delivered to me, and— I think we kept our relationship alive because we loved each other and wanted that to flourish. Um, I, I think you may, ref, you may recall in my book, I refer to my, uh, my little guardian angel, my little, um, it's kind of like your conscience. You know, there's some things inside your head that, that sound right and, and you reinforce that thinking about it. And um, I just had a voice in my head that said, this is the woman for you. And I was still young, I was only 21 when I got married to Lynn. But it was the right thing and it's still the right thing. Our kids are all grown, doing very well, su- successful. And, um, and we're trying to we're struggling now through some of the things that happen to you when you get to be in your 80s.
1: <laughs> right And, and fortunate to, 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 to make it to that age. And in fact, I remember in the book, there's a point where you, I believe it was a halo jump high altitude, low oxygen, you're jumping into Vietnam. And like most of us, you you lose control of the the chute. You know, the chutes aren't that steerable, right? And and we don't, and so you end up where you didn't want to be uh, and and there's two Viet Cong there who who almost capture you but you do something that you know my dad has always told, told me, my, my father's also a Vietnam veteran he said you know always make sure you have money on you cuz there could be some bad situations where you need money and you had cash and you had the currency that it was called dong and so so tell us what happened when you uh, landed i believe it was in a rice paddy uh crashed through some bamboo shoots and all of a sudden there's a farmer and two Viet Cong um and you yeah. think that you're going to have that your wife is going to get a telegram and you're, you're, you're even, you even write about that in your book, and you're really, cons- it seemed at the time, your concern was getting back to your wife. So tell, tell us the story about what happened.
0: Well, I was trying to get jump qualified, Halo jump qualified, while I was in Vietnam. And unfortunately, we had a, a parachute rigger in SEAL Team, it was a plank owner, as a matter of fact, named Carl Marriott. And we had our own uh, parachute loft in Da Nang, where we stayed. Um, we stayed in an old French fort, by the way. It was a really neat place. It was built by the French for the French Foreign Legion, Uh, officers as a as their bivouac as as right on the beach in China Beach and so we each had a private room we had a a room boy that came by and swept up all our cigarette butts and everything it was kind of like the life of luxury if you will living on the beach like that and we had a platform looking over the beach we could have coffee or beer and stuff and uh, we had this parachute law and so one day I told Carl I said Carl I said I'd like to get Halo qualified I said "Uh, where can I get a shoot he said well let's go over to the air force base the navy air force base and um, i traded a, a pair of fins or a knife or something with a pilot for his for his chute, because he could get another one so i got a regular a regular um, you know pull a pull a d-ring chute, and carl cut it the way you can make a stirruble so he made what they call a seven gore tu i don't know if you're familiar with parachute technology but that makes it look you cut seven gores and you make a, the letter T U out of it. So it cut there's two big two panels this way and then five panels this way and then makes a fairly steerable parachute. But uh, he cut it with scissors and then he took it into town and it had a mamasan seamstress stitch a nice uh, webbing around it to so it didn't fray. And, and he showed me how to pack it. And um, once I learned how to do that, I made a couple of clear and pull jumps. You may be familiar with you just bail it out and count to ten and pull. You do those from I don't know three or four thousand feet. And then for me to make the the final jump, I had to do a twelve or twelve five, whatever, which is a full sixty second fall. And uh, I had my watch. I didn't have a nice little rig on top of my reserve. I had I just had my watch. So I bailed out of this, and uh, the the guy that took me up was a CIA guy from Air America, and he had a, a stole aircraft called a Porter. As a huge wing lift area, large wings, single turbine engine, and the the CIA, those are the Air America guys, they would use those airplanes to fly leaflets, medical supplies, etc into the mountains, into the highlands, and stuff like that. That's a different story in a different book, as you'll hear. So anyway, so this I, I, we just got this guy drunk one night, and he took me up to let me jump. And we all knew that the terrain, along the beach was fairly safe except south of what was called marble mountain this was actually a big hunk of marble stuck up like like diamond head you know at the end of the beach and uh, that was vc tilt so i i pulled in, and i jumped and i pulled a little too high so i got caught in some thermals thermal drafts updrafts and instead of going down i went back up again and it drifted me down south towards marble mountain bad news <laughs> Because I landed, like I said, like you said, in a bamboo grove. I thought it was going to get sh- shish kebabbed. Um, crashed through the the bamboo, covered up my face. Landed, got a few scratches. S- sitting there, in my harness swinging about four feet off the ground, and the farmer. Farmer was pissed off. He was shaking his fist at me. And the, these two um, Viet Cong guys, they didn't know who I was. I was. Uh, you may have heard the term MACV SOG. That's the military air assistance command studies and observations group. Well, I was working for the CIA in the studies and observation group. We didn't have any dog tags. We had nothing on us that would tie us to the military at all. No insignia, nothing. I wore a bathing suit and a t-shirt and I carried a 38 in the field and a total 22 that I bought personally when I went into town. And, um, and so I didn't look like an army guy. They didn't know if I was a Russian or a Polak or whoever. And I spoke enough Vietnamese from the language school I went to and all of us did. It took eight weeks of Vietnamese language. And then I was able to convey to them I really was Dinky dao <laughs> Which means I'm crazy. Which means crazy. I'm crazy. Do I dinky doo? Do I dinky Dao? We dinky doo. <laughs> and I pulled out and very slowly pulled out my dog and I handed him all the money. And I said, Sinal, I said, I'm sorry. Dinky thou, Sin loi. And they smiled and took the money, and that was, I walked out. And wow. a few days later, I don't know, it was a week or so later, some guys, some army guys were there in a Jeep. They got ambushed and one died and one, two or three sent to Hanoi, POWs. So I just, I thank God. Uh, my guardian angel was there. It was a divine intervention. Um, don't know if you believe in that, but I do. I've had two or three or four of them, divine interventions or should have been, should have been my number, but it wasn't. You read one of them, the other one, my blackout in the pool.
1: Yeah, and tell tell us about that.
0: Well, it was when I was in the underwater demolition team um, before I went into the SEAL team, and uh, I was in Subic Bay, and it was a 25, what I thought yard pool, and I was used to showing off my swimming skills by swimming underwater. Four laps, 100 yards underwater, making a turn underwater and holding my breath. And I hyperventilated uh, quite a bit. And I, I I did 100 yards, four laps of the pool. And my, my buddy, Roger Cook, was watching me perform this idiotic stunt <laughs> at, at the time. And I said, I know I can do five laps now, Roger. I know I can do five laps. Hyperventilated, went the fourth lap, t- made the turn to, for the fifth lap, lights out. Total out-of-body experience, blackness, some stars, mellowness, um, a very clinical out-of-body experience for people that have had near-death experiences. And I, I felt myself lifting away, and I could actually look down and see Roger performing or res- resuscitating me. That was a very strange sight in my mind and then i'm back in my body looking up and saying hey roger what's going on and he said i was down for about eight minutes seven or eight minutes don't know for sure so he rushed me to the hospital and the doctors were absolutely shaking their heads They said how the hell he recovered from this i have no idea you should be dead Uh, i told the nurse he says if he's still breathing at five o'clock let him go back to the barracks and they discharged me at 5 o'clock, and I had a little headache. But <laughs> well, that was about it. So, you know, those are divine inventions. There's a, there's only one way to, to, the, to describe it. The man upstairs didn't want me to go, and Lynn was probably holding his hand saying, don't let him die.
1: And, and you you, you had near death experiences, and and you get out of the military. And for many of us, we think that that once we get out, we're going to live a yeah, a safe life, and that, that the adventure is over. But for you, the adventure was was just beginning. So tell us a little bit about uh, what what you started doing once you got out of service. Once
0: well, you once I you were wanted, discharged from the navy. I wanted initially my plan was to go back to school. Um, I, w- I wanted to get a degree in physics or something something engineering wise. But I met a good friend of mine who was in the class after mine, a guy named Jerry Linus, at the Hotel Del Coronado. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but it's a beautiful old hotel. And uh, he had just pulled up in a brand new JAG XKE with his girlfriend. And he was all dressed to the T's. And I said, Jerry, good seeing you, man, because he got out about maybe five, six months before I did. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm down in Louisiana diving. He said, you wouldn't believe it. You got to get in the business, man. He said, they're paying huge, big bucks. I paid cash for my JAG. And uh, he said, by the way, he said, they're starting to hire divers for the North Sea. They're trying to drill oil in the North Sea. This was in 1966. So I I made a mental decision and then a physical decision to, to do it. And I made contact with several diving companies. And I got a call from one up in Santa Barbara named Ocean Systems, Um, been around. They'd been around as a contract diving service for a union oil company, mostly on the west coast of California. And they needed divers to go into, into Savanger, Norway and work in the North Sea. So the president of the company, a guy named Danny Wilson, he hired me. I spent two months in Santa Barbara. Lynn was with me and our daughter, little daughter, first daughter. And then I deployed to um, Stavanger, Norway, as part of the crew, and we were diving um, surface-supplied air, like scuba, surface-supplied air with a hose that down to about 150 feet. Um, mixed gas bell diving was was the traditional way of diving deep with, with mixed gas. But if the bell wasn't available, we also had to be qualified in hard hat mixed gas diving so i had qualified to 500 feet so that was my job and and immediately i was getting more money than i ever dreamed of i was making more money than an engineer out of stanford so this was for me and i had an affinity for water i was not afraid of the water even though it was black as can be and um i excelled at that within in six months i was a diving supervisor and ran my own crew so that's how i got into the diving business and You've read some of the adventures that I've had in that business, um, a couple of near-death experiences not, were not mine personally necessarily, but others were divers, and, and where I was just playing a role to help make, help them survive. Um, it was an exciting career. It's the most adri- biggest adrenaline rush you can ever imagine, standing on the bottom of the ocean, in the middle of the North Sea, where nobody's been before. It's kind of like the, I'm sure the astronauts felt when they were walking on the moon. So you're tied to the world through this rubber hose. Without that rubber hose, you're a dead man, just like that. And you got to watch out. And so crazy. you look. to keep an eye on your hose.
1: <laughs> and so you leave the military to spend more time with Lynn and to live a. What you think is going to be a normal life, but yet you find yourself still traveling quite a bit and still living a life of, of of danger and and excitement. And so that you know, I think that the misconception is when we leave the military, that excitement and danger is over. But the reality is there are plenty of careers out there like yours where you can continue to pursue it.
0: Oh, sure. I mean, even being a police officer, highway patrolman, or A firefighter, EMT guys, I mean, they may get their adrenaline rush. And basically, I guess I have to admit I was an adrenaline junkie. Uh, I got my, you know, i thrilled doing that kind of stuff and showing off, you know, being a little macho about it. Um, the, The commercial diving world is filled with the same kind of characters as SEALs, same kind of people. Many of us, excuse me, many of the guys in the commercial diving business were Navy SEALs. And I had several buddies of mine that went commercial diving. And my buddy, George Layton, he was in my boat crew with me. He spent 30 days in a tank in the in the middle of the North Sea. It's saturation diving, where you go 30 days in a tank. And, you know, every day you go down from the tank, you go down deeper to do work, and then you come back to the tank. Tank keeps your body compressed to roughly 400 feet, but you make excursions to 500 feet. And you do this for... four three or four weeks, and when you get out, they give you a check for fifteen or $20,000. This is in 1966. So everybody that, that did it you know, had a fancy car and a fancy girlfriend. Uh, I was a little more modest, I guess, because I had a family and a wife and another daughter. So that's how it worked.
1: My generation would leave service and then come back as a contractor to Iraq or Afghanistan and make a lot more money and a little yep. bit more relaxed rules and, and, yep. and seem to really enjoy that. That didn't solve the being away from the family problem, but it, it gave them a, a, a chance to develop a different skill set or to use the same skill set uh, in a different way.
0: Yes, and a lot of SEALs have done that too since that whole evolution has happened. Um, my, my generation, not so much because we were too old. Too fat <laughs> by the time that got ready, but your generation had a lot of guys coming out of the army, marines, and seals, go over to Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, or whatever, and become contract. I had my my buddy George went over to Afghanistan. In fact, he made a movie. Um, he he's liked to smoke marijuana, and I'm not into that kind of stuff. But he he went over there to do a movie about um, the dope, the the heroin business, and. It's called Fishing in Afghanistan. It's actually a short little video. It's on YouTube it's called Fishing in Afghanistan. And he starts out by showing these kids, by the way, he's over there as a contractor to help put in some water lines, fresh water lines for some of the extended villages that lost their water for whatever reason. So he's working as a contractor. He had, a, he had more of, I think he carried a 45. But he's out in the bush. He's dressed just like an Afghan. He's got a big, full beard and everything. And you've seen the guys, even guys out of the Army and stuff. They, get, they try to blend in as much as possible. And George did that. And he made this movie showing little six-, seven-, eight-year-old kids in the poppy field scraping poppy paste off the poppies. And then how does it get refined? And he actually got a chance through his interpreter to go into a processing building, which is just a mud shack there somewhere in the Hindu Kush, where they were actually refining the hope the um, heroin poppy paste. And he got in because his interpreter told the guard, who had an AK-47, and all this is on film, that George was a deaf mute from Turkey. He said he's a deaf mute from Turkey. So they let him in and George has got a little handicam working. And he got footage of inside this this place, stirring the mud and all that stuff they were doing. And later on, after he got he got out of that place, a DEA agent, international guy asked him, he said, how in the heck did you know where to go? He said, we've been trying to track these guys down for years. He said, it's very simple. He says, they only have one hot meal a day. And so if you see smoke coming out of the chimney at six in the morning or seven in the morning, they're cooking paste, they're not cooking food. <laughs> and the DEA agent said, I didn't know that, terrific. It was a great hint. So yeah, I never had, I really had never, no desire to go back into combat. I think that I got my adrenaline rush from the diving. I didn't need any more bullets shooting at me to make it even worse.
1: And, and you found that adrenaline another way as well. And, and you you, be, you got involved with lasers and, and became an entrepreneur. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, the diving business started to take a toll on my relationship. And I could tell that Lynn was taking care of three kids and I'm gone to wherever. They never find oil in Hawaii. You know, they always find it in some of really the crazy places, Borneo and South Island of New Zealand and Power in Australia. So all this traveling I was doing, I knew was taking a toll on our relationship. And I just felt that it was time to hang those up, hang that up and find something else. Now, we, my last job was a vice president of a large diving company based in Singapore. And I was covering everything from the Philippines on the north to the South Island of New Zealand on the south. New Guinea, all the islands of Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia. I had a huge territory. I had 600 divers working for me. And um, we built a house in Florida, a beautiful house in a, in a lake community with a big, beautiful spring in the middle called the Springs, as a matter of fact, near Orlando. And um, that was our plan. I thought we would, when I got through with the diving business, we would move back to that house. So i decided to to call it a day and go find another career and that's basically what i did moved back to florida started thinking about what i wanted to do um had a couple of false starts took about a year and a half and i got a call one day from a recruiter who wanted to know if i would be interested in interviewing with a laser company for a sales job because i had been in sales as well i said sure i'll interview this is a startup group uh, guys came out of Martin Marietta, a few engineers, sharp guys, and they'd been involved in some of the first laser-target-designated systems that, that the military used, smart weapons. So that was kind of on the cusp of the, the smart weapons uh, business. So I got the job, and um, a year later, I put a $5 bucks on the books, backlog sales, and we got a couple of calls from some New York stock exchange firms, boutique firms, to do an IPO, take the company public. And I walked away with 45,000 shares of stock that later I sold. And that's how I got in the laser business.
1: And how, how long were you in that business? Is that where you, you, you retired from there? Year, or did...
0: 27 years. I spent 27, 27 years. years in the laser business. Yeah. So I went from one company to another. I had three or three, four different gel, laser companies during that 27 year period. The last one was a company here in California uh, that was eventually bought out by Amada, which is one of the largest laser Japanese laser companies in the world. they make They make those huge laser platforms that you know twenty feet square, that X, y table, robotic, cut two inch steel, they use them in the shipbuilding industry in in Japan. And that company bought my company out. Anyway, I had uh, enough resources to retire, so I, I took a little to retirement. I, I quit when I was sixty two, and then I started writing my my books. I did some painting too. I sold my paintings at the local winery. I had a lot of fun doing that. Sold a lot of paintings to drunk dr- <laughs> to the drunks. <laughs> they came out after oh. having a party at the winery. And they were like, oh, I like that painting. Yeah. <laughs> Buy that. So.
1: Well, and your, your your writing is not just your your autobiography, No Lifeguard on Duty, which I, which I have right here. You're a talented writer because this is a this is an autobiography, but you've also written science fiction. You've written poetry. You've written quite a few things. But what I liked about uh, we we talked about this before, right before the podcast, is that. To write this book, what you did was you had you had been writing all along. And I think that's the key, is that putting this book together uh, was not starting from scratch. It was years and years of compilations of, of, of your writing that you were able to put together. You said, you know what? I think I'm going to write a book. It's never as easy as we think. It's just like everything else in life. But, but you, have, you have shown a lot of, uh, I think, breadth of talent in, in writing. And it seems to be something that you really enjoy doing. And you continue to do in your retirement. You're continuing to write today.
0: Well, I wrote a lot of technical articles when I was in the laser business. Um, you know, advances and things of applications, engineering kind of stuff. So I had a lot of things published in trade publications. Um, laser, anything to do with lasers would publish my work. And and I'd describe a particular application, how it went about, and what kind of a laser you use, how big the beam should be, how much power you should use, kind of fixture you needs. And when, when we first started out, the last company I was with, I was with for 12 years Um, they didn't have a laser group. They were bought out by a Japanese company that had a couple of lasers. And they said, you know, the Japanese told my company, they said, you have to sell our lasers. So they hired me as their sales manager to get that whole project off the ground. And they only had one type of laser. what's called a YAG laser. It's a solid state laser. And they had two power supplies, one 10 watt and one 50 watt. But it was just an engine. And in my view, you can't make anything with just an engine. You have to build a car around it or a truck around it or a wagon, or you have to build something you wanna do or go somewhere. So I insisted and kept pushing engineering to drive them into making a workstation, X, Y, Z, robotics, rotary tables, that sort of thing, so that you could mount the laser over that and a person could take a, a widget and place it in a fixture and have the, the thing spin and the laser beam would do its business. So you had a complete system. And then you go out in the field and sell a $200,000 $300,000 system instead of a $50,000 laser that they didn't really know what to do with because it didn't have any motion to it. It was just a beam of light coming out. So that was a big transition that I was able to get the company to do to make them into a systems integrator rather than just a laser supplier because Ford makes cars and trucks. And if you just have an engine, what, is it, what good is it? The engine's no good unless it's sitting on four wheels, all right? So that was the the attitude. And so I got them into the systems business. And within five years, we had a $20 million company.
1: And you found a problem, and then you provided the solution, and you found that the solution was many times more valuable than the, oh, the, yeah, the, the product that was true. on the market.
0: Yeah, uh, we sold system. I sold systems to, um, companies that wanted to manufacture some of the very first um, uh, what they call EDFs uh, EDFAs, are, these are transmitters and amplifiers that are used in the fiber optic communication industry and they have to seal them and they have to do all kinds of things with them, it takes very very delicate work to do and I made some of the first systems in one company, bought 10 systems at 300000 bucks a piece shipped them to wow. China wow <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that's how that's how I got in the laser business, and I had a great career with the laser business. I met some great people. Um, that whole industry has just absolutely exploded, even since I've retired. I retired when I the day after I turned sixty-two. I said I'm gone. I wanted to retire, and I had the resources to do that. So, um, but the guys I worked with went on and, and did great things with other companies as well.
1: And through all this, Lynn has stayed with you. You've been married now for 59 years. Is that correct?
0: It'll be 59 years on March uh, 5th of next year. And um, God willing, we'll, we'll push 50, 50 years and more
1: your life is an amazing story, Craig. And I want to now take our veterans to what I call the after action review. You probably remember these from the military. And what I like is the three up three down three examples of leadership that helped you get to where you were, whether it's a civilian leadership, business leadership, military leadership, uh, some three great examples and three bad examples.
0: I'm a fairly honest person. I don't like to, to bullshit. Um, you know, if I say this can do that, it can do that. um, I'm also a patriot, you know, being in the service. I I was a Canadian, I didn't have to join the Navy. Um, I have a Canadian passport, I have dual citizenship. Um, One of the things that really bothered me was we had a customer in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley. Um, It was a Chinese company. And they had a a row of about 10 or 15 women who I later learned had been imported from China. And they were using our laser. 15 laser systems, small ones, but they weren't using any optical protection. And when I had a call from the manager, owner, operator, whatever, he one of the lasers wasn't working right. He wanted me to come down and fix it. I said, I said "Well, I'm not the fix-it guy, but I'll come down and take a look." So I got down to the, I got up to the facility, and he's got all these women that don't speak English. He's got the equal opportunity employment sign on his wall that you have to have by law. But there's nobody in there that speaks English except him and one other engineer. I said, Where's your safety manual? I don't know. What safety manual? I said, everybody has to have a safety manual, according to the FDA. Didn't have it. I said, What are you doing with these women? They don't have any eye protection. Oh, no understand. He played, he played his cards like he was dumb, you know, he didn't understand the laws, etc. Cetera, et cetera. I said well i'm sorry i have to report you and um i found out two weeks later they moved the whole operation back to china but he the, the none of the women were wearing eye protection whatsoever so i kind of got on my on his case for for doing that um people found out about that and about what i had done and i got i think i was doing the right thing um, I was proud of the day I retired and, I, you know, the company gave me a nice going away party and a trophy for being the millionaire salesman or whatever. I don't know. It's, well, sitting, yeah, no, in, we'll- it's sitting in the trophy sitting in my closet. It's, it's a pewter. It's a trophy. I haven't done things. It's heavy.
1: Well, it rewards. A, awarding our, our team members is important, right? Because at the end of the day, it may not be about the trophy, but it's about Recognizing you in front of the team and, and letting the team know that you've done something great because we lead by example and, and when the team sees an example of leadership they they're more likely to follow it. so tell us a little bit if you could a, a positive about military leadership that you saw when, when you were in service
0: well I think the the um, the communication between the officers and the enlisted men in the seal teams is is, is quite different from the regular um, Marines, regular navy. It's there's a there's a much closer bond because the officers are going through the training the same as you, and so I think that the, the I think the enlisted men learn from the officers how to lead, as much as perhaps the officers learn how to lead, and I think that was really important. I, I some of my best friends were the officers in my class, and there were seven officers that graduated, and my boat skipper. Brooks Reitenauer was the oldest and most senior officer. He was a JG lieutenant. He was the nicest, most calm, straightforward guy, but he knew his business. He knew how to lead, and we, we never got into trouble. And unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago. I went to his first funeral. But the other six officers that graduated are still alive, and every five years or so, the officers will get together and Host a party and say, Come on over, you know they buy the beer, they buy the wine, they buy the dinner and everything. and so it's it's a totally different sense of camaraderie when you when the officers and the enlisted men uh, have that much connectivity, if you will, friendship um, loyalty to each other. So I think you learn from that uh, I, I I know people that came out of the Marines or the army. And you know, they hated their officers, but and even the NCOs, some of them, the senior NCOs, they hated them. They were horrible people. They weren't smart. They just happened to have the stripes. Um, I'm sure everybody's got stories to tell about that, um, that anybody that's been in the military will tell you, and you probably experienced it too. Some are good, some are bad. We've had some bad eggs in the SEAL team over the years. My friend David Devine got killed because of an officer that told him he had to get in the water upriver and the water was eight feet deep, and he's carrying 60 pounds of gear. He went to the bottom, and he never came up. The officer got reprimanded, and he kicked, kicked him out of the teams, but it didn't bring Dave Devine back. Leadership bad, matters. Bad leadership. Another officer that I, that I know personally um, ordered a friend of mine and his dive partner to get in the water off the Straits of Taiwan to do a closed-circuit oxygen dive. Now, oxygen diving is dangerous because oxygen as a gas, pure oxygen, will kill you at 60 feet, like that. And if you go below 60 feet, you're really asking for trouble. So the Navy has a, requ- a law that says you don't go deeper than 30 feet. Well, when you're launching divers and the seas are 15 or 20 feet, you know that the divers could be at 40 feet, think they're safe, and a 30-foot wave's coming along as well. And all of a sudden, they're at 60 feet. My good buddy, one of my boat crew died, Tony Escotter. Had a a wife, one or or two kids, from Los Gatos, California. So, just mistakes, officers maybe being, uh, trying to make marks for themselves, or get praise. But you know, there's always going to be one or two bad eggs in the batch,
1: and so, we've seen it—the careerist who cares more about their position than they do about their people—and that always them, that always ends badly.
0: Nobody's high end, yeah, exactly, yeah. And you see that in the enlisted ranks too, in the senior enlisted ranks. Um, my a good friend of mine was in my class. He was really only the only bad boy we had in the class. He had a criminal record. Um, Army wouldn't take him in. <laughs> <laughs> Marines wouldn't take them. Navy said, come back in a year, and if you haven't had any <laughs> altercations with the cops in a year, I'll take you in. So he came in the Navy. He was a yeoman. You wouldn't think a bad boy would be a yeoman. you think a, ye- a bad boy would be a you know, gutter's mate or something like that. He was a yeoman, and he was a great yeoman. And he made rank, and he was finally worked his way up. He made I think he made four tours to Vietnam. Um, several purple hearts. Some of them he didn't even want. He said, keep it. I got enough. And um, highly decorated. Got a warrant commission. Um, you may remember, a, a, you may recall a person named Dick Marshinko. He was written, he's written several books. He's sealed yes. too. Uh, well, Dick Marshinko asked my friend, my, my classmate, um, to come to the East Coast and he would get him to uh, the War College. So he transferred to the East Coast, Marshenko got him to the War College. He got two master's degrees and a commission. They did, and they commissioned him as a lieutenant, light lieutenant. They didn't make him an ensign. They got him right to JG right away. And he retired after 30 some odd years as the Bullfrog, the oldest active duty Navy SEAL. That's the Bullfrog. He retired as a full commander. Wow. So there's some great success stories. Proud
1: to and that. I think as leaders, our goal is to develop all of our team members to to grow to that level, right? To to be Absolutely. that senior leader.
0: I felt so good when the guys that worked for me went on after I retired, they left. They they went on to new jobs and made much more money and had much more success and got much more recognition for their hard work. So I really felt good about that. I felt good about the guys that worked for me had gone on and done things as good as I had ever
1: Sometimes those dividends of leadership, we don't see for years down the road, but they usually happen after we're no longer the leader, but it yeah. still makes us feel good to know that we played right. a role in that, in that right. development.
0: And I look back on my swimming career, when, you know, when, you're, when you're standing on the podium and you're getting a medal, uh, to me, that, that was a nice reward, but I always was thinking, where's the next one? What's the, where's the next one? I wanted to move up the ladder, so to speak. Um, so I was just as devastated by that event early in my life as my family was.
1: We want something greater. And that's most people that serve in the military feel that just like you, you want the next medal. You had the win. Where's the next win and the next one and the next one. And that seems to be common among uh, leaders that excel, but also among service members. Uh, They just don't want the next promotion, the next promotion. They want the next mission. They want to succeed in the next mission. Yes. The next challenge.
0: Yeah. Um, A good friend of mine who was a plank owner of SEAL Team one a game named Dennis McCormick. Uh, he's passed away now. But he, after he got out of the Navy, uh, he got a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. And he wrote a paper called um, the, uh, the Seven Seven Characteristics of Navy SEALs. And he went on to explain it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a Navy SEAL to have it. You can be an Army Green Beret. You can be a firefighter. You can be a police officer. you know. But these are characteristics of leadership. And and resilience was clearly the number one thing. Resilience, determination, Uh, calm and an an innovative approach to problem solving, Uh, decisive action and then execute a plan. Uh, People that that enjoy being with other people, intercommunication, interconnectivity to the rest of the world and society, Uh, honesty beyond reproach, Uh, a belief in a higher power, belief in God, Um, self-control, um, I have to admit, sometimes we all lose our (laughs) self-control, you know, one too many beers, whatever, and get tempered up. Um, but I have an optimistic outlook on life. I I just turned 80 years old. I've got my lumbar back problems, but I have to thank one person uh, very, very much. And she works for you, uh, Stephanie Bennett and her assistant, Melissa. Those two gals made my life so much easier. And they are just to be rewarded and congratulated. I can't praise them enough. So thank you for hiring them and leading them. And thanks, Stephanie, personally from from my heart and Melissa. You know what I'm talking about.
1: I do. And of course, Stephanie is an Air Force veteran, and so we hire veterans because they understand leadership the way you do. And I, I want to thank you, Craig Marley, for being on the Veteran-Led Podcast, for everything that you have done as a leader. You, you've you led by example, but more importantly, you have lived by example. Uh, from overcoming adversity early on, to becoming a Navy SEAL, serving in Vietnam, coming out and, and having a great uh, that, like I said, that, yeah, we're we're all adrenaline junkies at heart, and we. It, but but continuing that great career, uh, and then and then when when the family begin to begin to suffer because of your career, you you went into lasers, became an entrepreneur, and now you're an author. You, you continue to just do more and more and keep building a bigger future, and that's an important example for veterans. Uh, we know too many veterans that leave service. And, 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 and life ends there for them. They, they don't do anything else, it, and they're miserable. But, but, but you showed that the adventure can continue, and the, the gifts that you can get, the leadership gifts that you, that, you, that you received in the military, you have given back both as a diver, uh, when, as an entrepreneur in, in the world of lasers, and now as an author. So thank you. Thank you for being on the Veteran-Led Podcast. And most importantly, thank you for your service to our great nation. Thank you for joining us today on Veteran-Led, where we pursue our mission of promoting veteran leadership in business, strengthening the veteran community, and getting veterans all of the benefits that they earn. If you know a leader who should be on the Veteran-Led podcast, report to our online community by searching at veteran on your favorite social channels and posting in the comments. We want to hear how your military challenges prepared you to lead your industry or community, and we will let the world know. And of course, hit subscribe and join me next time on Veteran Lead.